I think we have to recognize in our broader retail world that is historically owned by men, managed by men, uh, designed by men, and yet women are our most important customer, is looking at the entire store, but starting in the parking lot through a women's set of glasses is really important. And recognize that in our analog world, shopping starts and ends in the parking lot. Do we need to pay more attention to it? The answer is yes. Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. In this edition of It's a Customer's World podcast, I'm joined by Paco Underhill. Paco is a renowned environmental psychologist, author, and thought leader in the retail space. Recently, Paco released his new book, How We Eat, detailing where our food comes from and how we buy it. In this episode, Paco answers 11 questions covering each chapter of his book from senior-level marketing students at the Walton College of Business. His answers provide great insight on where grocery shopping is at today and how we might imagine it could be in the future. Let's jump in. Hi, Paco. It's a real pleasure to have you back on It's a Customer World's podcast. Uh, Last time we talked about a number of subjects, but the basic theme was around the power of observation and how to pay attention. And the insights you covered uh, were many that you've seen across your career, and a lot of those were outlined in your New York Times bestselling book, Why We Buy. Uh, Now you've got a new book out called How We Eat, which appears to be off to a great start. I've read it and believe it's just as rich in content and insights as Why We Buy, if that's even possible. Uh, I'm sure you've done lots of interviews already uh, to talk about the book, but today I hope that it's a little bit unique for you. I spoke with a Professor Molly Rapert at the Walton College of Business about how we could get the most out of your time today. And I think we've got something in store that will be great fun. Um, For those of you who don't know Molly Rapert, she teaches marketing management at the Sam Walton College of Business. This is a senior level course designed as a seminar style discussion-based course. Molly runs the course with the help of a 15-member advisory board of executives who play a really strong role in designing and executing the experience. Each semester, her students tackle their normal content, but they also do compelling projects such as participate in store walks with merchants and suppliers in the retail space. So she's a big believer in getting out into the real world with practitioners. Some time ago, Molly pivoted away from the textbook and she relied on your book, Why We Buy, The Science of Shopping, as the foundation for her courses at the U of A, as well as teaching in Italy and Slovenia. She's a big fan, and she's delighted for her students to collaborate with me on this podcast show with you. Now, the book, as you already know, has 11 chapters. Molly's identified one question per chapter from her students, 
And what I want to do today is have the students do my job for me and ask the questions that are on their mind chapter by chapter. Before we do that, though, I'd like to ask you my burning question. Taking on a book of this scope and depth is not a casual undertaking, especially since you've already produced a number of best-selling titles. If you would, take me to that moment you decided you needed to write How We Eat and the fundamental takeaways you want readers to grasp. You know, Andy, um, first of all, I love writing. I am, I am, I've been scribbling my entire life. So, and if you think I'm going to stop with this one, you, you, you have to think about something different. I love it. Um, part, of, part of what I realized here is that everybody eats and drinks. And that as I wound down my role as a market researcher and reached my age, which is now age 70, I wanted to do something that helped the reader get to a better version of themselves and get to a better version of the planet. And I wanted a book that, yes, would be read by business people, but also would be a pleasurable read for everybody. Okay? And I wanted to make it anecdotal. I wanted to make it funny in places. And what the response has been has been very touching because there have been industry figures like you who have said, Paco, you changed my prescription too. And I wasn't expecting that, okay? And the, the point is here, Andy, all of us wear glasses and all of us periodically have to go in and get our eyes checked. <laughs> and this is what this book is about, is getting your eyes checked so you can see the world and experience the world and use the world a little differently. Well, it certainly did that for me. And uh, I thought, how in the world is he going to top uh, his first book? And I, I feel like you've done that. And I can't wait to see this continue to expand and grow, see it in, in the academic environment, in boardrooms, because uh, I do think it has that kind of impact potential behind it. Let's go through and uh, invite Molly's students in to ask you their questions about each chapter one at a time. So That's let's great. take chapter one. Let's take chapter one, getting into supermarkets. Hi, Paco. My name is Nathan Bax, and I'm a senior marketing major from Jefferson City, Missouri. And I had a question related to chapter one of your book. I never thought of the effect parking had on shopping and find it very interesting. Do you see any trends between amount spent in the store and how far a customer parked away from the store or how chaotic the parking lot is? Thanks. Nathan, my, my, my wife will, will, will often yell at me and say that if you weren't six foot four inches tall, if you didn't weigh 205 pounds and you hadn't studied martial arts for 50 years, somebody would kick the shit out of you every week. And the point is here, Nathan, is that many of us male, male, male animals, we don't care where we park. There is, if you asked us, did you have a creepy experience in the parking lot? The answer is never. And yet, if I ask a group of women and go, when was the last time you had a creepy experience in a park parking lot? They'll, they'll often tell you something that happened within the past week. Do you know there are shopping malls in Asia where there are sections of the parking lot, the closest to the door that are meant for women only? 
You go to a shopping mall in Thailand, there's a woman only section of the parking lot. I think we have to recognize in our broader retail world that is historically owned by men, managed by men, uh, designed by men, and yet women are our most important customer, is looking at the entire store, but starting in the parking lot through a women's set of glasses is really important. And recognize that in our analog world, shopping starts and ends in the parking lot. Do we need to pay more attention to it? The answer is yes. Okay. Brilliant, brilliant answer. Let's go to chapter two, the city-fied get country-fied and vice versa. Hi, my name is Lakey Carpenter. I am a senior from Dallas, Texas. I'm majoring in marketing and minoring in real estate finance. Uh, my question relates to chapter two of your book, and I was wondering if men were the typical shopper instead of women, would they still have the same standard for cleanliness? Thank you. Lakey, absolutely not. Come on now. Um, you were, your, your radar for clean is just acutely more um, tuned than mine is, much less Andy. We know, for example, uh, if we think about a hotel room, that the number of women who will walk into a hotel room and look and see if there is any evidence that 364 other people stayed in that room before they got there in the past year? The answer is no. One of the things I found very interesting about that question of clean is that when we worked on the design of hotel rooms, we interviewed chamber chambermaids. And the idea that a chambermaid could affect the way a hotel is designed, I think is, is really cool. Hmm. And yeah, one of the things that we know is if it's easy to clean it, it gets cleaned much more often and gets cleaned a lot better. And that that radar that you that you have leaking is really important. And if you can, uh, through the course of your career, help get us to a healthier and cleaner planet, my hat's off to you. Oh, that's excellent. Chapter three, the supermarket of virtue. Hello, Paco. My name is Charlie Cooney. I'm originally from Richardson, Texas. I'm currently a senior here at the University of Arkansas, majoring in marketing. Uh, in chapter three of your book, you discussed organizing a produce section similar to an Apple store, where an expert would be present to help the customer handle and select food, reducing the spread of germs and providing a consumer with some firsthand information. My question for you today is, what do you think it would take for businesses to adopt a practice like this? And how do you think consumers in America would respond? Well, part of what we know is that many merchants across the planet have, have, have gone to a cathedral, church, and chapel strategy, okay? Which is, I can go to Herald Square in New York City, and there's a huge Victoria's Secret there. The conversion rate is actually pretty low, but it is meant to be evangelical. It's, it's meant to introduce things to people. There are major merchants in Europe that have food halls that aren't designed to be shopped every day or every week. 
but designed to be shopped several times a year. And I go to those places to see things, taste things, talk to people, have people help me, and be able to understand what my vocabulary is. Do you know that in the 1950s, the typical American ate under 30 things? If I look at a 19th century French farmer, they ate 70 things. Part of what we know is just that our exposure is based on being able to often have somebody help us get there. My nephew at age five, when you asked him, what is your favorite meal on your birthday? Would he say, I want mac and cheese? No, he said, I want sushi. Hey, in, in our shrinking, shrinking world, yes, finding a better way of doing it and finding a food experience that is curated. Do you know if you go to a food, food uh, hall in Milan or in Paris, are you allowed to touch the vegetables? The answer is no. The vendor picks out the vegetables for you, often asking you, are you going to eat this tonight? Or are you going to eat this tomorrow night? Wow. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's time for some changes. Wow, man, that's fantastic. Chapter four, yes, we have bananas. Hi, Paco, I'm Maddie East, and I am a senior from Bentonville, Arkansas. I am majoring in marketing with a minor in management, and my question relates to chapter four of your book. My question is, in your opinion, what company executes retailtainment the best and how so? Okay. Um, first of all, if we look at stores that have some of the highest uh, sales per square foot, do you know the store that has the highest sales per square foot is the last souvenir store before you step out of Disneyland. And it has an average per square foot sales of just almost $9,000 per square foot. Wow, wow. I think wow. part of what we have to recognize here is that edu ed edutainment comes in a variety of different forms. I can be enter entertained going to the farmer's market where I get to talk to people, okay? And there's some conversation. I could talk to other consumers. We know that one of the fundamental uh, shifts in retail that happened in the mid 1990s is when Sephora stopped selling nose to nose and started selling hip to hip. And many of us, I'm sure you too, Andy, made that pilgrimage to the Sephora on the Champs-Élysées to see what that difference was. And that the idea that there is a collegial interaction with the sales clerk, and that I'm going away from selling across a counter to both the consumer and the help being on the same side of the counter. And the answer is uh, yes, there are a variety of stores that have done a very good job and people make pilgrimages to them. Yeah. And Brilliant. Okay. Brilliant. Chapter five, coffee break. Hello, Paco. My name is Elizabeth Anderson and I'm from Leewood, Kansas. I'm majoring in marketing and minoring in event management. 
My question pertains to chapter five of your new book about coffee. Coffee is so ingrained into daily traditions. Home coffee makers have grown more and more complex. How do you see coffee shops maintaining that competitive edge to keep customers coming back and back again versus preparing their perfect cup at home? Well, I at, at last count, at my home in New York City, I had seven different ways of making coffee, okay? And I stocked three different kinds of beans, light roast, medium roast, and dark roast, which I shifted based on what my knowledge of the process is. Um, I think our coffee edu education has been uh, affected, but we, we remember something. We all wish that we sold legally addicting stimulants. Okay. And uh, are we, it, I, yes, I can make it at home, but if I'm out in about, can I stop at Starbucks and have somebody do a really good looking coffee with all that little shapes on the top and a little foam and whatever? Could I do that at home? The answer is maybe, but maybe I'd like somebody else to do it for me. I often think about our relative degree of non-sophistication. If you go to an Italian home, there is cappuccino made in the morning, there is con leche made it at, and then there's espresso at, at night. And um, it sure works. Um, I have spent a lot of time in the broader coffee industry. I had a family that uh, adopted me when I was in high school that owned a coffee plant plantation in Costa Rica called Aki Aki Aquieras. Have you ever had Christmas blend at Starbucks? Mm -hmm. That comes from yep. our family. And I was very happy to make that connection. Hmm. Excellent. Okay. Chapter six, the supermarket of vice. Hi, my name is Brooke Kaplan and I am currently a marketing major. My question is over chapter six in your book where you tell the story about how you were able to afford ginger preserves and how that nostalgia really grew your love for the middle of the marketplace. I was wondering how you see companies in the middle of the marketplace use nostalgia to in their packaging and messaging to also get that response from others. Thank you. What a great question. What a great question. Have you ever tried ginger ginger preserves? Uh, it's one of those things that once you taste it, you can never go back. Um, how do I get people to try things? Hmm. Some of it is by sampling. Hmm. Some of it is maybe by sample packs. Some of it is recognizing that I am marketing to a generation that is still deciding what are those those 80% of things that I consume every, every week? And what do I consume on special occasions? Um, one of the things I used to love doing is going to a, to a fancy hotel breakfast and getting choices of all those little jars here. I think we need to get much more creative uh, about how we introduce and how we get people to sample. Hmm. And, um, that's going to be part of the enjoyment of being a merchant in the 21st 
century is, is figuring those things out because the old marketing engines of you know, broadcast media and print media, I think are, are consigned to the dust heap of history. Yeah. And coming up with new ways to be able to get you to put something on the tip of your tongue, yeah, go do it. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Chapter seven, A Basil Grows in Brooklyn. Hi Paco, I am Aaron Miller Simpson and I am a senior from Fayetteville, Arkansas. I'm majoring in marketing and I'm minoring in management. My question relates to chapter seven of your book. I am wondering, after reading the chapter, I would like to ask about the potential challenges the entrepreneurs like Tobias Peggs will face when trying to combat the global food crisis. What will be their biggest challenge to conquer in order to continue feeding the billions of people expected to populate the planet in the next coming years? Thank you. Okay. Well, I think part of it is that it is time for us to focus on how we educate consumers. Have you ever had basil for breakfast? I mean, almost none of us have ever had a leafy vegetable. And yet, one of the easiest and healthiest foods to, for us to be able to consume is leafy vegetables. I interacted with a grocery store chain that put gardens on their roof. And do you know what the problem was? Is they couldn't sell the volume that they created because it was in North Carolina and people eat vegetables only at certain times of day and in certain configurations. If there, if there was a way for us to be able to figure out how can I mix that basil in with my scrambled eggs and get you an eminently healthier breakfast and leave out the wonder, the wonder bread, please. I love it, love it. Chapter eight, the supermarket of the future. Hi Paco, I'm Eliza Ingalls and I am a senior from Houston, Texas. I am currently majoring in marketing and minoring in finance here at the U of A. My question relates to chapter eight in your book, which is in your one act drama in this chapter, you enjoy the social experience of shopping, whereas Diana saw it as an inconvenience. How do you think the future of supermarkets will cater to these differing preferences for shopping since you can't really go fully online but need to change the old fashioned way of how we shop? Thank you. Well, you know, one of the things that we rec recognized as researchers is that when I stepped off into the world of market research in the 1980s, the seminal difference was between men and women. Right? We could look at where did they walk into the Burger King and what table did, did they go to? We could look at the way they shop grocery stores. But part of what we know is that in the 21st century, in 2022, some of those differences are not tied to gender, they're tied to generations. And there are ways in which at different stages in life, we react to the act of consuming. If you're caring for two little kids the way Diana is, two voraciously hungry twins here, here, and you don't own a car and you live in Brooklyn and you have to trudge you know, six blocks to the store and carry everything home, do you think shopping is a pleasure? But there's going to be a point when those two kids grow up, Diana and her and her uh, wife 
get to move to the suburbs. They get to uh, buy a nice Volkswagen Jetta. There is a barbecue on the on the back porch. And yes, their, their relationship to consuming is going to shift. But yeah, we know that if you're 20 something, how you think about shopping for groceries. And when you're 40 something, much less 70 something, you bring a different set of criteria to that process. Yeah. You know what one of the ironies here is um, if I think of a 25 year old and a 55 year old walking into a US super supermarket, which one has more money? The answer is the 50, 55 year old. Sure. If I do the, do the same thing in Shanghai, do you know how, who has more money? And this is, again, one of the, the things about both gener generational, about local, um, that there are things that stay the same and there are things that, that change. Yeah. That's excellent. And that's one of the great things about retail is what are the biological constants to stay the same, which is what yeah. why we buy was uh, about. And what are the things that are in constant state of evolution, which is how we eat. That's excellent. Chapter nine, shopping with Marion. Hello, I'm Caitlin Skolaski, and I'm a senior from Franklin, Tennessee, majoring in business management with a minor in marketing. My question relates to chapter nine of your book, Shopping with Marion. I'm wondering, what is the future of home deliveries? As mentioned, an external room is being put in place on future homes, but what about apartments and other existing buildings? Thank you. Caitlin, I think that there are some shifts that are gonna to have to happen. And whether it's a uh, like a refrigerated box that sits outside your front door where someone can make a delivery, they have the code to be able to get in and put it in that refrigerated box so that when you get home from your trip or you get home from the office, it's all ready for you to take. Um, this is something that happens in other parts of the world. I, I was in a very fancy apartment building in Las, Las Vegas a year or two ago. And every apartment had a front door, okay? And then about six feet away from that front door was a little tiny door, maybe three foot by three foot. And okay. it had a key on it, but that is where they got deliveries. And ah. my friend, you know, okay on the other side of that door, put a little refrigerator. So if the doorman made a delivery of something that was fresh, they could open one door, open the second door, stick it in the refrigerator, close both doors and leave. Um, I think this is one of the evolutions in home design that is coming to us. As I said in my first present presentation, less than 25% of American homes have a mother, father, and dependent children. And with each passing month, the number of households where the woman is the dominant bread earner goes up. Hmm. And therefore, how we deal with that multitasking woman who is trying to earn some money, take care of her kids, take care of her husband, take care of the house, and do some shopping, yeah, she deserves better. Great, excellent.
Chapter 10, Drinking in America, a very popular chapter on the university campus. Hello, my name is Emily Uvaney. I am a senior from Fort Worth, Texas, majoring in international business marketing. Um, and my question relates to chapter 10 of your book, Drinking in America. I was hoping you could speak to a notable shopper insight that you've learned over the years uh, regarding the difference in legal drinking ages between countries. So, for example, how it's 18 and up in European countries versus how it is 21 years and up in America. Thank you. Well, you know uh, that, in, that in Germany, you can drink beer or wine at age 14, but you can only do it in the presence of a qualifying uh, adult. Um, I think part of what we're looking at here is that people in other countries learn to drink in different ways. And it is about moder moderation. It is not about getting drunk. Um, it is watching the mothers, you know, sip, not gulp here. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why the shift in restaurants that has that is happening here in the U.S., where if you go to a big city, the number of restaurants that are focused on the female customer is is going up. Um, how are we going to get to a better consuming public in terms of alcohol? I think some of it is um, recognizing that uh, flavored gins and vodkas, which are meant to be uh, focused on, on an underage drinker, probably yeah. maybe should be taken off the market. Yeah. Um, I recognize that um, the Nova Scotia State Liquor Commission organized some of its stores, not based on um, the, the brand or the type, but based on the palate meaning that all of the sweet things were in one place, all of the savory things were someplace else based on what people's choices are. If I'm 21 years old, am I going to be drinking fine scotch? The answer is no, but you and I, Andy, at our age, it, it tastes very different because our palace evolved. Changed. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Chapter 11, Brave New Eating. Hi Paco, it is so nice to meet you. My name is Morgan Wojciechowski and I am a senior majoring in marketing and then minoring in supply chain. My question for you today relates to chapter 11 in your book. And so I'm really curious, do you think that the way that we eat is dependent upon the habits of the families in which we grew up in? So. To give a little example, um, in my house, my mom did a lot of our cooking throughout the week. And then on the weekend, that's when we would go to restaurants or order takeout, um, kind of as a celebration of the weekend. And I found that I followed that exact same kind of structure in my life now as a college student. And so I'm just curious if you found any research on the likelihood that people stick to those family norms versus conform to really the convenience of today's society with services like DoorDash and other meal prep services as well. Morgan, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Many of us are greatly uh, affected by the food consuming traditions that we grew up with. Um, I can re I can remember just for 
in, in my own lifetime, what a, what a treat it was to be taken out for a meal. But I think as we, as we age and as we experience the world, and Morgan, you are going to go out there and be able to see how people live in other places. Because that uh, ability of a family to cook every meal at home was often predicated on the fact that there was a mother who stayed home and there wasn't two uh, adults in the family who worked. That also wasn't predicated on the fact that it was a nuclear family where there were kids okay, rather than adult children. At different life stages, our, re, our relationship to consumption changes. And I hope you teach your children to cook, Morgan. <laughs> Love it. Love it. There's nothing better. Okay, so Paco, those are the 11, but I, you know, these students, they didn't stick to the, they didn't stick to the assignment very well. And so a bunch of them want to ask you about life advice. And so this came from Talia West, John Overton, there's a number of them that asked the same basic question because they're facing a world of entering the workplace at 21, 22. And so I'll boil the question down to this. What advice would you give to a 22 year old senior in college? Or what would you give to your 22 year old self who is about to graduate? Any advice you might have about creating your own self brand? Okay. Like you've created the Paco Underhill brand, but, but what would you say to that 22 year old senior in okay. college looking at the world? Okay. Um, Andy, this is a topic that I have lectured on at major universities and colleges across the world. And I'll get up in front of the audience and go, everyone in the room that knows what they want to do when they grow up, you're free to leave right now. Okay? If, you have, <laughs> if you have known from age 14 that you were going to be a nurse, you were going to be a doctor, you were going to join your father's legal practice, fine, terrific. But Everyone else that, that doesn't know where they're going, let's stick around and let, let me give you some pointers. First, every job has a front door, a side door, and a back door. And that for everybody who goes in the front door, there are multiple people who go in the side or the back door, okay? And recognize that. Second is get in the way of chance, hmm. meaning that one of the ways Love that it. you explore the world isn't to, you know, stay in Fayetteville, but it is to go to New Orleans, New York, Paris, London, where, 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 wherever, where there are options, there are industries, there are jobs that you never knew existed here. And it's only by exploring that you can find out, man, I never imagined being in the mannequin business, okay? Or whatever. Um, but getting in the way of chance and getting into an urbanized existence, I think is really important. One of the things also, when I was hiring um, people to work at in Viracel, it wasn't everyone, but one of the things that I often asked is, do you speak another language? And tell me about all the different places that, that you've lived. Wow. And, I think this is one of the keys to, again, being able to understand 
the broader global world is to do a little movement. Yeah. And the number of people who said, you know what, I graduated from college and I joined the Peace Corps. And it wasn't, oh, I joined the Peace Corps because I want to feel good, but I joined the Peace Corps because I wanted to escape. Yeah. I, I wanted to escape. And part of what that escape is, it taught me escape skills that I can apply to almost anything. Oh, wow. As you know, um, if you'd asked me when I was 25 years old, whether I'd be seen as an expert on how you sell lipstick or the dynamics of a fast food drive through I would have asked, I would have asked you what insane asylum you escaped from. But you know what? I've been tossed out into the world and I've loved every nerdy minute of it. Every I love it. I love it. Paco, great, great, great answers, great responses. I hope that wasn't too taxing. Um, but it was a great walkthrough of your book. Uh, if, if people haven't um, gotten a copy yet, you really need to because it's one of those transformational books that'll be around for some time. I don't think there was an insight in there that was uh, it, that's going to evaporate. They feel very evergreen in terms of human truths. And I think that's the kind of book that sticks and you've done a great job with that. Is there anything looking back that you would wish you would have put a chapter in you didn't get in? Um, not yet, but I want you to know that the new book that I'm working on right 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 now okay stop you're working on another book you just finished this one how do you get the energy at your age okay uh, i don't even know how to ask that question but i i am super impressed but go ahead tell me about your new book well it's a, it's actually a, a book that's been in progress for a number of years and it's about american paleon paleontology the study of bones and about the impact that a Afro-American cowboy had on the history of man in the new world. Wow. And please tell me what inspired you to go that direction? Um, and, and like, where did you get this thought? I was in New, new Mexico and I picked up a book of short stories. And one of the stories was about George Mick Junkin. And I got fascinated by George. And I have tracked his life, the Afro-American cowboy, born yep. in 1856, died in 1920-22. I've collected his letters. I've collected journals. Um, I, there are a number of, of accounts of his life that have been done. But I'm Man. looking forward to finishing that one. Well, I also often uh, advise students to uh, pay more attention to fiction and biographies if you want to learn about human behavior, truth, and what makes people do what they do than necessarily business books. And so I'm really looking forward to that. And I hope you do come back uh, when that one's published because that will be a fascinating one to do. I had a great conversation with Paco and loved listening to his interaction with Walton College students. Paco's vast life experience and eagerness to explore the world shape a unique perspective on retail, career advice, and leading a healthy life. Thank you so much, Paco, for your time and your continued pursuit of creating a better world. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. 
If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends, and I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas's Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Walton College original production. 